The abounding joy of New Testament hope. I know we've been out of this for a couple of weeks. This is part 15. How faith and sin are each generated by where we place our hope. And so what we've been doing now is looking at the tools Satan uses to take our hope from the goodness and promise of God and place it in something else. What are the tools that he uses? And this morning, we're going to look at covetousness and materialism. I have one, two, three, four, five texts. Most of them are very short. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 12. Now there is, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. So the idea is you, you can't have this without this. For we brought nothing into this world... And we cannot take anything out of the world. None of us really believes verse 8. I mean, we say we do, but nobody in this room believes verse 8. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. How many would say, that is just a perfect description of my heart? All the liars, put your hand up. But those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. This is quite a description, isn't it? That that plunge people, like jumping off a cliff, plunge people into, into this and into that. Ruin and destruction for the love of money is is it's a root is what it is a root of all kinds of evils it is through this craving that is this the love of money that craving through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith pierced themselves with many pangs he doesn't say they didn't get their riches but he says they pierced themselves with Many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, look at these verbs. Flee. Flee these things. What things is he talking about? He's talking about that. Love of money. Flee these things. Here's the other verb. Pursue. So you got flee. Pursue. So, so I take that to mean you can't pursue this righteousness until you flee these things. Love of money. I know I made a mess of it. Can you follow, though, his, his reasoning in that? So it's not just a matter of saying, I'm really going to pursue God. That's, that's B. A is you have to flee the love of money. Or you can't pursue God. Don't even try. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, steadfastness gentleness. Fight. The good fight of faith. And we know what that is now. It's, it's fighting this, love of money. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about reading your Bible. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. 
to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Okay, now look at a couple of short texts. The idea here is to show you this is not just some passing whim in Scripture, that this is a, everybody seems to build on this same foundation. Hebrews 13, 5, and 6. Keep, that is uh, ongoing verb in the present tense. Keep doing this all the time. Never stop keeping. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content. Remember we saw that word before? Be content with what you have. For as he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Proverbs 38 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full, that is, if I have a lot, I'm full and I deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So it's all about the Lord. If you have, if you have nothing and you steal, you profane the name. If you have an abundance and you forget the Lord, you deny him. Either way, there's a lot tied to material possessions or lack thereof. Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. So uncontrolled, being swept away. Evil desire and, and, and covetousness which is idolatry. Interesting, like these are all terrible sins, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, passion, but only covetousness is called that. It's, it's, it's different. Covetousness is idolatry in a way that sexual immorality isn't. Luke twelve fifteen. This is Jesus. So we've been reading Paul. Luke twelve fifteen, And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his, his possessions. Let's pray. The subjects we have a hard, harder time responding to repentantly. We sang that first, that first opening chorus. I will follow, I will listen. My sheep hear my, hear my voice and they follow me. I will, I will listen. And, and in areas that get very close to our desires, listening becomes exponentially more difficult for us. And so all of us, we, we really do need to pray, Holy Spirit, we do not have ears naturally inclined to deny materialism. None of us. And so if anyone is going to leave church today getting anything, it will take a supernatural act of your spirit. And so collectively, and church, I'm going to ask you to respond in a minute. Collectively, we say, do that miracle. If that's what's needed, do that miracle in my heart. 
And everyone said, it's kind of anemic. Everyone said, yeah, yeah. Here's kind of where we've been. People sin when they think they will come out ahead by sinning. That's why we sin. People sin when they think they will find some satisfaction, some security, some joy that will exceed the future they will have if they just trust Jesus' promise and grace for their lives. And so people give in to lust when they think they'll find greater excitement in illicit sex than in the future God has for the sexually pure. They believe a lie. People become angry and vengeful when they think they will be more satisfied in achieving their own personal justice rather than leaving God to punish the guilty and bless the peacemakers. What I'm saying is, sin doesn't just come out of nowhere. Every act of sin starts with some specific form of unbelief. People put their trust in a false hope for their future satisfaction or security. I sin, you sin, we sin because we cease to believe that our greatest hope will always be found in God's terms rather than ours. That's where sin comes from. All sin. All sin starts in a false hope. Remember, no one sins out of duty. That's what we've been studying in this series, especially in the last five or six messages. People sin because they place their hope for their future in the promise of satisfaction or security or joy that sin offers. They trust that more than they believe God's word. All of that begs the question. We've got these Bibles in a a billion translations. We've got them on our our smartphones, our iPads. We've got them all over the place. So why is it so hard, given all of the promises, all of the proofs of God's goodness and trustworthiness, why is it so hard to place our hope in God alone? I mean, you think it just makes sense to place one's hope in an eternal, almighty God. One who can make and keep precious promises for the rest of my life and on into eternity. Why doesn't everyone hope in God alone? And there's only one answer to that question. It's because the devil works overtime. There's only one thing he cares about. He's not the least bit interested in you. He has one thing that he does. He wants to shift your hope from God and have you place it in something else. That is his full-time job. To take the hope you should place in God alone and cause you to hope in something else. That's what he does. Right from the Garden of Eden to this day. And what we've been doing now is looking at the tools he uses to birth distrust in God, the things he does to shift my hope. And so far, we've looked at pride, anxiety, and impatience. Today, we're seeing how he uses covetousness to destroy our hope in God. Point number one, materialism is Satan's most successful tool 
to destroy hope in God because it brings immediate satisfaction and security while it destroys our hope in God painlessly. Is that up on the screen behind me? Okay. The, The idea there is painlessly. It destroys our hope in God painlessly. And here's what I mean by that. I mean, there's usually less of a fight with conscience over idolizing wealth. There's less of a fight with conscience than in, say, committing adultery. Materialism is the sin we commit while nothing seems to be terribly wrong with our hearts. Like, unlike theft, rage, murder, adultery, which, which so often, even when we commit those sins, they leave a bit of a stain of pain and regret... Materialism isn't like that. It makes everything about life seem better. And that makes it very hard for people like me, people like you, to bring any kind of repentance to the table when we are covetous, when we are materialistic. Materialism dopes us while shifting our hope from God alone. It doesn't feel wicked. It feels successful. Consider this. In 38 years of ministry here, dealing with all sorts of people and their relationships with God, I was thinking about this last night. I have never, never once, I've had people come into my office with all sorts of things on their heart that they want to get rid of and repent and pray. Some hard-hearted just want to argue. But I'm talking about people that come and they, they really want to do something in their soul. I have never, ever once had anyone come into my office and say, you know what, Pastor Don? My love of material things is destroying me spiritually. Never in 38 years have I had one person say that to me but I know thinking about this church over the past 38 years and the people who never darken the door who used to who used to sing on platforms and be involved in ministry and don't go anywhere near a church and the thing that killed them was wealth you could think of faces but here's the thing they they didn't see it happening (laughs) they didn't see it coming Materialism takes the hope that I would place in God and fixes it to something else. It shifts my contentment. Remember, the writers use that word. It shifts my contentment from God alone. It it takes the passion that should flow from my heart to God and directs it to something else. And that's why Paul, in, in Colossians 3, 5, let me put it up there alone, he specifically links covetousness with that. It's idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. All sin is wicked. All sin will be judged. But not all sin is called idolatry. Materialism, covetousness, is idolatry because it it divides the heart and the heart's hope and the heart's delight. It shifts it from God alone. There's something else other than God I am looking to for satisfaction, for security, and for joy 
So important is this concept, when you look for it, it's so important in the scriptures that a warning is given against it in both the first and the last of the Ten Commandments, though the wording is differently arranged. Commandment number one says, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, that's Exodus 23. I didn't make a slide because it's just so short. Exodus 23, commandment one, no other gods before me. The tenth commandment is Exodus 20, verse 17. Here's commandment number 10. Okay, so you shall have no other gods before me. That's commandment number one. Here's commandment number 10. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You can repeat the word. You shall not covet his male servant. You shall not covet his female servant. You shall not covet his ox. You shall not covet his donkey. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. Please notice what's happening here. Commandment number 10 lists... Commandment 1 just says, no other gods. Commandment number 10 lists what those other gods are. It just makes it very specific. In terms of my heart's hope for satisfaction or joy or security, covetousness manufactures other gods. They are material in nature. These says my heart, will bring me satisfaction, will bring me joy, will bring me security. And the warning is repeated in two commandments, first and last, because that shift in hope is, is just so deadly. Okay, point number two. Ironically, materialism drains the life of the very thing it most craves. One of the wisest men who ever lived said this. He who, he who loves money, it's not, not just he who makes money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. Vanity. We need to know what Solomon was saying and what he was not saying when he penned that idea under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He doesn't mean money can't buy a lot of very nice things, because it can. He's not denying the spending power of wealth. But he does mean that Materialism drains the soul of the capacity to find satisfaction in wealth. This is because materialism, covetousness, it drains your soul of the capacity to, to find contentment hoping in God alone. In the same way that a, a donut takes the edge off your appetite for a fine dinner, materialism spoils the soul for the joy that comes from God alone. You can't get to that joy anymore. You can't find it anymore. You've taken the edge off your hunger for God. You didn't know that's what you were doing. You didn't feel like it was what you were doing. You go to church, 
is happening. Even this is not the worst effect of materialism on the heart. Remember what I said introducing this subject. Materialism is the sin people commit that makes everything feel fine while it's being committed. It doesn't feel bad. So in that sense, it's one of the most blinding of all sins. It not only turns the heart from hope and joy in God alone, it makes the damage of that sin almost imperceptible. And the next point will explain why. Point number three, materialism numbs the mind to the spiritual damage being done to the heart. It, it's like that needle the dentist gives you before he fills your tooth. You, you, you're left with really no idea of what's being hollowed out in your mouth. You don't feel it. It's no exaggeration, that illustration. You, you need to read prayerfully, I need to read prayerfully, these words of Jesus from the parable of the seed and the sower. It's in Mark 4. I have it on a couple slides, the whole text. He's given the illustration now, the seed, the sower, you know that parable, and he's, and he's telling the disciples what it means. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown, When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with, with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. Immediately they fall away. Others are like the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. The desires for other things. They enter in, look at this verb. They, they choke the word. They choke the word. It's not complicated. The heart's desire for other things competes with the heart's reception of the word. The more I hunger for the one, either one, the more I hunger for the one, the less I will hunger for the other. But it is impossible to set your hope on both. This is what Jesus meant, right, when he said you can't serve two masters. You can see that Jesus wasn't even pretending to be delicate, right? I mean, he chooses that horrible verb to make his point. He says... The desire for other things, riches, putting my hope in those things. That's what it means, the desire for them, putting my hope in those things. It chokes the word of grace and promise out of my life. I've only had one occasion when I was in a restaurant with my older brother and his wife years ago. And he swallowed something and began to choke. I've seen people, <coughs> you know, and you give them a second and they tear up and then they're talking and it's all good. This wasn't that. You never get it out of your mind. We were all laughing. My brother Peter and I were embarrassing our wives, being a bit juvenile. 
I, you don't believe that, but we were. And then suddenly it happened. At first he just kind of coughed. And I thought it was just one of those things. And then he reached up, he reached up to his throat. And he immediately stopped smiling. And his face turned bright red and then started to turn ashen and white. And try as he might, he couldn't get one whiff of air. And finally, he kind of sank down in his chair. People all over the restaurant stood. A doctor, believe it or not, came over and finally did whatever it is they do. And We didn't talk much after that. We just kind of finished our meal. Actually, we just sort of picked at it, didn't finish, went home. And there's just that heavy feeling all evening that we almost came to the end of a life sitting at a dinner table. That is why Jesus chose that word, choked. Choked. The desire for things, the love of wealth, chokes out the promise and the grace of the word. And, and you know how it works. You can only choke so long. There's an urgency in choking, right? You can only choke so long and life is gone. You can't choke forever. You'll die. So in terms of what's important... You know, when the four of us were sitting in that restaurant, nobody was thinking of how well the veal was done when that person... You just don't think of those things. It pushes everything else aside. Choking too long, life ends. And that's why Jesus chose that word. The love of stuff matters. You can't live that way. That's what Jesus is saying. You, you think you can. You're choking. Your soul, you're choking. You're not getting any air. Nothing of the Spirit of God. In that same parable in Mark 4, Jesus tells us how they're going to end up if they keep choking. He actually tells you that in, in the 12th verse, very specifically. So that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest, lest, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So, so this is what materialism can do. People are going to remain unforgiven. That means they'll forever be stuck in the same sins. People are going to hear the truth over and over, but never find the power to respond. That's what spiritual choking is. God grows dim, starts to fade as hope and joy and satisfaction is pursued in material things. Point number four. Materialism is the root of sins that don't even appear related to money. This is what I see in that sixth verse, tenth verse rather, of 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils.
The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Sim simple enough, but th there seem to be all sorts of sins that have nothing to do with the love of money. I mean, people commit all sorts of sins without even thinking about money, I'm sure. But what can Paul mean? And I think he gets right to the core of that truth of this entire series on hope, how it's related to holiness. Paul is saying there's, there's a kind of heart that sets its hope on material, earthly things, and, and once that contentment, that hope, is set on anything other than God, there is no sin from which the heart will ever be safe. There's a kind of heart that roots roots a life of all sorts of sin. In fact, the heart that sets its hope for satisfaction or security or joy on anything other than God, that heart will breed sin the way a swamp breeds mosquitoes. Point number five. Materialism will leave you empty at death. I see it in that seventh verse. We're almost done. For we brought nothing into this world and we, we cannot take anything out of the world. There's a wonderful, isn't a wonderful stark simplicity here. Paul is just reminding us that in, in terms of this earthly life I'm talking now, we are lives between these two bookends. We weren't here before. We brought nothing in. We can't take anything out. And so we're to remember we, we have these bookends to our lives. Everybody does. Let me illustrate it with a fictitious story, okay? About a month ago, Chris and I went down to the uh, Royal Ontario Museum. He's an art lover, as you know. And he said he was hungry to see some great pictures, so off we went. When we got to the gallery, we kind of separated. Each went his own way. When I saw him later on, he was walking down the corridor. I could hear his feet on that marble floor, and he had four pictures under his arm. And as he got closer to me, he started walking faster, and he said, quick, let's get out of here. You probably didn't know this about him. I don't know if I should be sharing this. I was shocked. I said, Chris, you can't, you can't take those paintings. They're not yours. What do you mean, he said. They're just hanging there. They're just hanging there all over the walls. It's a public place. Nobody else was taking them. There are no signs saying you can't take them. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. I really like these pictures. Let's go. Start the car. <laughs> I said, Chris, this could be a credential issue. I said, you can't take them home. I said, they're not really yours. They don't belong to you. You can look at them. You can enjoy them. But even though you like them a lot, they're not yours. And here's how you know they're not yours. You can't take them with you. You can't leave with them. You didn't bring them in here, and you can't take them out. 
brought nothing into this world. And you take nothing out of it. That's what Paul says about everything, everything you have. You can't leave here. You can lay up treasure in heaven, I know, but you can't leave here with any of it. We will all die someday soon, very soon. It's already appointed, the Bible says. Will you have a payload of joyful investment in God's kingdom as you stand before the Lord, or will there just be this enormous cavity where your life used to be with all the things you placed your hope in that abandoned you? Last point, number six. Keep your heart free and glad. I wanted to end this with a positive note because there's so much warning in those texts. If you don't preach the warning, then let's just go home because this is it's the Bible. Keep your heart free and glad by placing your hope in God alone. It's not easily done. I mean, remember the way in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.12, we read it at the beginning, where, where Paul said you and I would have to fight this good fight of faith against covetousness. Fight. Take it to the mat. Step on its throat. Fight against it. We have to fight because the very essence of the, you know, Psalm 1, the counsel of the ungodly, is this lie that we are only safe as we secure and satisfy our lives on our own terms. And so, here we are. Without incredible diligence, it's almost impossible to remain pure. The spirit of self-indulgence, is, it's like lead in your drinking water. And so the Bible offers this counsel. It's in our last reference. Is it up there? Read it out loud with me, okay? Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, and so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That first word, keep, it's in that constant present tense. You and I can never rest from this fight of faith. We can never quit this keeping. We can never rest from the fight against materialistic greed. It grows, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, it grows in the heart like lard on a pig. And notice the way the writer ties the branch of materialism to the root from which it grows. Don't fall prey to the love of money. Remember. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You don't need to be covetousness. Your faith in me will pay more dividends than all the wealth you can accumulate. Here's the deal. There are a couple important sent sentences in this sermon. Here's one of the most important sentences. You can't create desire for the Lord at will. 
can't create desire for the Lord at will. A lot of people think they can do that through worship. Worship is a wonderful thing. As long as you don't try to make worship do what it was not designed to do. Worship is a great way of expressing my love and devotion to the Lord. But if you think you can create the desire for the Lord just by doing this, you're going to be frustrated and you're going to feel like a hypocrite. Because you can't create desire for the Lord at will. Desire for God comes from placing your hope in Him alone. And here's the second most important sentence. You can't create desire for the Lord at will. You make room for delight in God by eliminating competing affections. You make room for delight in God by eliminating competing affections. That's what the good fight of faith is all about. That's what keeping your life free from the love of money is all about. It's not a negative thing. It's creating contentment in God. It's creating joy in God. It's not just eliminating. It's freeing. And oh, may God give us the wisdom because it doesn't feel like it at the eliminating, at the eliminating stage. It feels incredibly costly. But on the post side, a peace and a satisfaction in God that you never could have found any other way. And everybody said, I thought you were all going to say, I don't think I can do that, Pastor Don. You can. It's a matter of prayer, taking God at his word, and hoping in.